Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, as media sift through the fallout of the January 6th attack on the Capitol, it's important to see that the insurrectionists were not simply victims of a modern disinformation campaign, hoodwinked via social media into believing that Donald Trump got more votes in the election. They were also participating in a tradition deeply rooted in the American experience, as historian Eric Foner put it, that says that only some people's votes should count, that black political power, as exercised in Georgia, represents a threat to the natural societal dominance of white people, and that violence is appropriate to neutralize that threat and to maintain that status quo. That resonance is why historians are shaking their heads as media talk about January 6th as unprecedented. While shocking and dispiriting, it has layers and layers of precedent that need to be learned and engaged if we are ever to actually have the racial reckoning that corporate media are forever insisting we've already had. Carrie Lee Merritt is an independent historian and filmmaker, author of the book Masterless Men, Poor Whites and Slavery in the Antebellum South. Her essay, co-authored with Ray Lynn Barnes, A Confederate Flag at the Capitol Summons America's Demons, appeared on CNN.com. We'll talk with her about this country's past that is never dead, or indeed even past. Also on the show, you don't have to choose between the assault on the electoral process by violent white nationalists and a disease that's killed more than 380,000 people in this country and left many it didn't kill with lasting health problems. Both are major crises. And just as many people could and did predict something like the attack on the Capitol, Many could and did predict that the distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine would be marred by the Trump administration being the Trump administration and the hollowing out of this country's public health infrastructure. We'll talk about the troubled vaccine rollout with Elizabeth Rosenthal, longtime journalist, now editor-in-chief of Kaiser Health News. That's coming up, and we'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. You can feel the eagerness of many people, including in the media, to get over January 6th, to section those people off as outliers with little to do with the U.S. conversation, much less the mainstream Republican Party, and why don't we move along to the healing already? Donald Trump in this rendering is a unique, lamentable phenomenon that doesn't represent who we are as a country, And when he leaves, those hateful ideas will leave with him. Black Americans, anyway, know the price of healing without reckoning because we pay it. And historians, too, are shaking their heads at descriptions of the attack on the Capitol as unpredictable and unprecedented because while it was many things, it wasn't that. People are ready to take on a more complicated understanding of this country's roots, but will news media help inform that conversation or just inflame or even worse, ignore it? 
Carrie Lee Merritt is an independent historian, author, and filmmaker. She's author of the book Masterless Men, Poor Whites and Slavery in the Antebellum South, and co-editor of the forthcoming Reviving Southern Labor History, Race, Class, and Power. She's also working on a new film on the Civil War. She joins us now by phone from Atlanta. Welcome back to Counterspin, Carrie Lee Merritt. Thank you so much for having me. Well, in the essay that you co-wrote with Ray Lynn Barnes for CNN.com, you call the lost cause of the Confederacy America's most successful disinformation campaign. Folks are kind of talking about the lost cause as an idea, but there's not necessarily a deep understanding of what that's really all about. I wonder if you could talk about that and the resonances that lead you and others to talk about Trumpism with reference to a a, a kind of new lost cause. Right. So I think what's happening today definitely has its roots in the mid-19th century. And, you know, obviously we're not the only historians to to say this or to be saying it for the last five years. As you were talking about, we've all been saying this since Charlottesville. And to be quite honest, you know, Black Americans and Indigenous Americans, they've been been saying this for, for centuries now. So this is not a surprise to people who have been oppressed in America. It's only coming as a surprise to white people and people who have been really kind of in a privileged enough position to really not have to know the history, the really bad history, the bad side of our our country's history. And so a lot of the reason they don't know this bad side of the history is because of the lost cause. And the lost cause is also known as the lost cause of the Confederacy. It was basically an ahistorical theory which accomplished two things. One was that all white Southerners supposedly fought for the Confederacy valiantly and willingly and really believed in the cause and, you know, kind of they made it into more of a state's rights issue than the real cause, which was, of course, slavery. And then the second part of the lost cause mythology is that, you know, all these whites were fighting valiantly for for the Confederacy because slavery wasn't that bad. It wasn't a bad institution. It was really a benign institution run by these benevolent, you know, Christian men who were trying to uplift and take care of, you know, these kind of happy slaves. It's it's that kind of imagery that's gone with the wind and some of these popular cultural representations that all of us know. But essentially, the lost cause helped to solidify the white South, even up until the very recent past. You know, Georgia obviously was an outlier in that this year, but even up until this day, the Deep South, where slavery was at its apex, has traditionally, since Reconstruction, disenfranchised all the black voters that it could and united white Southerners of all classes in a white supremacist, racist ideology that is actually rooted in this lost causism. And we argue that lost causism is a type of grievance, right? A way that you get people to be white supremacists and to really have a lot of racial hatred in them, especially among poor whites or working class whites who would have more in common on an economic level or a labor level with other working class people from different races. You have to engender that by not only rhetoric, but by using grievance as a tool. And I think we've underestimated how much you can whip up racism and xenophobia by just saying, you know, 
you were robbed of this. You, you've you got something to be angry over. You've got something to be aggrieved about. And scholars like Heather Cox Richardson have shown how this kind of Southern sense of grievance and, and white supremacists who were feeling like they were losing control of the country in the 19th century, this ideology really spread West. And then it also took over the whole United States. And essentially the, the United States becomes southern white supremacists in some ways. Um, and so it, it's really the lost cause has in some ways won the Civil War, even up to this day. And we're seeing how that's playing out right now. Well, you talk about class fissures among white Americans and, you know, media have sort of fed the narrative of Trump supporters as hard scrabble white working class people, you know, that that economic anxiety was the primary driver. But, you know, when you look at January 6th, at least one of those folks came in on a private jet, you know, and and you you've alluded to it. And I know we talked about it back in 2017 after Charlottesville, the misunderstanding, the kind of instrumental erasure of, of class difference among white people is also historically referent. Yes, and and I have said from the beginning, as well as other scholars, is yes, there you know a majority of all whites supported Trump, you know, and, until these recent elections across all demographics, and there wasn't a huge difference in between affluent, well-educated whites and poor working-class whites. First of all, I think those things need to be well-defined because right. you have a lot of affluent whites that don't have anything higher than a high school education. So first of all, our categories are messed up in how we're analyzing all of this. Mm-hmm. But second of all, uh, the real drivers of all of this are the elite whites. And we see this, I mean, who's running this? An elite white man from, you know, the heights of New York wealth and high society. And they're engendering this class hatred. And we've seen it from the first time he began running, from the first time Trump began running. It was whipping up as much hatred and xenophobia among poor and working class people as whites as he could. And that's just a complete continuation of the Jim Crow playbook that goes all the way back to how white supremacists led by slaveholders and their sons used a combination of really horrible racist rhetoric, the police state as well, used police to arrest people for essentially doing nothing and incarcerate as many black people as they could. And then also with just violence, with vigilante violence, with any kind of terroristic violence that they could get away with. Reconstruction is the bloodiest period in our nation's history in terms of this terroristic violence. We still don't understand the depths of how many black people were murdered and lynched during these years. And so we're seeing today these threats of violence, these threats of white supremacist backlash. And our point in writing the article for CNN is there has to be punishments. I mean, there has to be punishments for all of the leaders very publicly and very obviously so that we can hopefully deter this from escalating, essentially. Well, and that's part of the problem from the past was a lack of repercussion that essentially in the name of things we're used to hearing today, civility, you know, and, you know, reaching and not being divisive, reaching across the aisle, there was a desire to go forward and not back and all of that. And that has an effect, that absence of of repercussion for this sort of backlash. 
Right. There were no repercussions for even the leaders of the Confederacy. And so because of this, because Lincoln actually was, was pretty lenient, but then, of course, a white Southern zealot comes and then an upper class white Southern zealot comes and murders Lincoln. And then it's left to Andrew Johnson, who killed any kind of progress that was to be made in terms of punishing the former Confederates who led this uprising against our country. And if that had happened, which was the radical Republicans' plan at the time, they wanted to punish the Confederates primarily by taking away their huge plantations and then dividing those up and giving land to freedmen and women. And so that would have radically, radically changed the entire trajectory of America. It would have completely not gotten rid of, but it would have really minimized the incredible racial wealth gap we see today. It would have gotten rid of a lot of the police state because formerly enslaved people would have land and thus they would have some power and some political and economic power. And so because we failed to punish these leaders of the Confederacy, land holding in the South never changed, wealth holding in the South never changed. Some of these small rural areas in the South are still run by the descendants of the people who ran the big plantation and power and wealth has never changed hands in much of the rural South. Well, finally, when we had you here in 2017 after Charlottesville, you were talking about an unwillingness or a hesitancy on the part of many historians to, quote unquote, enter the fray, you know, that they were academics and getting into the political conversation was sullying somehow. I take it you have not changed your thinking about the idea that there's an important role for historians in public conversation. Absolutely. And and we've unfortunately seen the backlash of this you know, over the last couple of years with professors that have been outspoken about the racist violence in this country or the brutality of our racist criminal justice system. The people who have actually spoken truth to power about these things have been fired or run out of their jobs or there have been mobs who, you know, literally threaten their families on a daily basis. So anybody who's actually speaking out about these issues is facing a lot of threats. And in some cases, they're having to give up their entire livelihood because they're telling the truth. And yet that just speaks to the importance of it. Absolutely, yes. I mean, the the powers that be do not want this information out. You know, they're cutting education budgets, they're cutting humanities, they're cutting history. Well, we've been speaking with independent historian Carrie Lee Merritt. She's the author of Masterless Men, Poor Whites and Slavery in the Antebellum South, which is out from Cambridge University Press. She's also working on a new film on the Civil War with Ray Lynn Barnes. And her article with Ray Lynn Barnes... A Confederate Flag at the Capitol Summons America's Demons can be found on CNN.com. Thank you so much, Carrie Lee Merritt, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. Having for weeks held back doses of the COVID-19 vaccine, the federal government announced this week that not only is it releasing all of it now, but states will be penalized for not using it quickly enough. 
Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar claimed that this was always the plan, that states have ample funding to roll out the vaccines to the public, and that there was never a reason for prioritizing any groups like healthcare workers or the frontline workers, overwhelmingly low-waged people of color who have been disproportionately sickened and killed. It's just the latest opportunity for reporters to use words like stunned and perplexed in describing the response of state and local officials to the vaccine rollout, which would have been challenging at the best of times. And these sure aren't those. Joining us now to talk about what we're seeing is Elizabeth Rosenthal, longtime journalist, now editor-in-chief at Kaiser Health News, and author of the book An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back. She joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Elizabeth Rosenthal. Thanks for having me here. Well, you see phrases in stories like, the administration of vaccines has met with delays and roadblocks. Um, That passive voice is safe, but the opposite of that isn't necessarily finger-pointing, another word we're seeing a lot. It's just trying to understand where the breakdowns or flaws in the system are so they can be addressed. I I think it's understood that this process was going to present challenges, as we say, but what would you identify as the the primary factors that have made it more confusing, more chaotic than it needed to be? Sure. I always say this is not rocket science. It's complicated logistics, but not even that complicated. I mean, the basic problem is a lack of central strategy. You can argue that a lot of different kinds of algorithms should dictate who gets the vaccine. And instead of deciding nationally with the best experts how we want to do it, Basically, the feds have sent it to the states. The states decide how they want to allocate it to the counties. The counties decide how they want to allocate it to hospitals and likewise to nursing homes and CVS. And it's just predictable chaos without a central plan which people can trust. And the newest wrinkle in this today, which I'm, I have smoke coming out of my ears for, is all these governors and mayors have announced that, okay, starting this week, January 11th, folks over 75 or over 65 will be able to sign up for the vaccine. Well, good luck with that. You know, I compare it to trying to get a delivery from Whole Foods during the beginning of the pandemic. You know, you have to be tech savvy, sitting there when the slots are released, You know, refreshing your web browser, that is a crazy way to do a vaccine program. And I think one thing that would have made this whole thing better was a central kind of strategy where everyone knew where they stood. And if someone says to me, okay, you're going to get your vaccine in April, I can be okay with that because I can at least know exactly when and where it's coming rather than this current turmoil where we have literally, these are the stories we are hearing at Kaiser Health News today, where I'm currently editor-in-chief. A doctor's office will get a call from a hospital saying, hey, we have six extra doses, send your staff over here. Or there'll be an announcement at a giant supermarket saying, hey, we've got four extra doses, come one, come all. You hear of one nursing home getting everyone vaccinated and another one 
10 miles away, which is presumably not as well connected or in a different county that's doing things differently, having no idea when they're get that, getting vaccine. So that introduces chaos. It introduces anger. And we just have to be slow and plotting and systematic about the way we do this in a rapid way. So how's that for a challenge? Well, and particularly at a time where public trust is obviously going to be paramount. You know, you have to trust that there is a plan. But, you know, first I wanted to say it can be hard for some people to see the unfairness in that first come, first served. You know, it, it sounds like it's equitable. Of course, it's not at all equitable, both in terms of as you say, having to be tech savvy enough to get in line on the, you know, on the on the website or sign up and then know when you're supposed to show up to someplace. But also, of course, a lot of folks, we're talking about undocumented workers, we're talking about homeless people, a lot of the folks who should be getting vaccinated, they're just left out entirely. There's no incentive in that sense to, to reach them, particularly if the federal government is going to be counting how quickly you can say you're vaccinating folks. Yes, and I think we know there's more vaccine skepticism generally in those populations, which makes it even more troubling. I mean, you you really have to, um, boy, you have to be good at playing the game of accessing healthcare in the U.S. As you said, you need to be tech savvy. So what does that mean? It means Maybe 80-year-olds are not as good as the 65-year-olds or an 85-year-old who has a 30-year-old grandson who can snag an appointment is in much better shape. I mean, so you're kind of favoring, you know, the well-educated, well-connected, well-hooked-up-to-the-internet. And then, P.S., we've seen in some states like New York where you officially get an appointment, but it's not really timed. So there are these long lines. So many people, particularly low-income people, have to work. So they need an appointment time if you want this to go smoothly or good weekend and evening time. There are ways to do this well, and other countries are doing so, but we are not. Well, but you say you central plan. What are you, some kind of communist? You know, um, you <laughs> no, know, not at all. Your book is about the businessification of healthcare. I, I I wonder what role you see that playing in in all of this in terms of the development of the vaccines and their distribution. Well, you know, I'm I'm certainly not a communist um, and uh, or or a socialist, but being a capitalist doesn't mean you don't plan. It should mean the opposite, right? But instead of planning, having a government plan, we've let every company, uh, and I, I will call hospitals companies for the purpose of this interview, and doctor's office, go it on their own, and nursing homes. So, for example, what did many hospitals in New York do? There was a great New York Times article about this. They gave it to their entire staff, including people who'd been working from home for the last eight months. Now, that's what a company would do. You would protect your own before you protected your vulnerable patients. A hospital that really cared about its community would say, yes, we want these frontline workers who have COVID exposure to be vaccinated. 
But then next, we're going to look to our vulnerable cancer patients who may be in here every week for chemotherapy or our vulnerable people with bad lung disease. And we did not see that happening at many, many hospitals. Do you think part of the problem, or I guess maybe I think part of the problem was kind of the setup. A vaccine was presented as the light at the end of the tunnel, you know, for a scientifically underinformed, you know, and to some degree politicized public. You know, it, it was going to be something that would put an end to arguments about what we needed to do societally, since we could do this thing individually or not, yes. you know. Um, in a way, public health as a thing, kind of like democracy, it seems is, is being tested. Yes, we have uh, chosen the most profitable form of ending the pandemic, which is a vaccine. And, you know, the fact that we've gotten vaccines at record pace, I, I'm not going to say that's a bad thing. It's a good thing. And that was one way to solve the problem. But why can these other countries be more methodical and systematic it's partly because they have central planning, but it's partly because COVID never got out of control there. So we are desperate for a solution. This is the only solution, given how out of control we've let this become as a result of not being good at public health. And so there's a, a kind of feeding frenzy for how to distribute it and who should get it and survival of the fittest in a way. And that's not very good. Not the way to do it. Well, I wonder, are there things that, you know, you kind of think reporters could maybe do more of, could maybe do less of in, in covering COVID and the vaccine? I've written that I thought the public service announcement should be scarier because COVID is scary if you get a bad case. I think we, we believe in this, like, let's be good neighbors, you know, think about your grandma. Um, that didn't work. We saw it all over the country. We've had COVID exploding because we didn't do the right public health things. So I think, you know, lessons learned is we really need to reinforce our public health system, make the CDC and the FDA scientific, not political organizations. And then at this point, yes, we will be depending on a vaccine mostly to get us out of it. But that doesn't mean you should stop the social distance and masking and a lot of people are, you know, the classic American thing. Uh, well, which vaccine is the best? I only want the best. I think the answer so far is anyone that's out there looks pretty good. And, you know, different countries are using different ones. But when it's your turn, you should take what's available. That would be my advice as a journalist and as a former physician. And it's what I intend to do. We've been speaking with Elizabeth Rosenthal, editor-in-chief at Kaiser Health News. Her book is called An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back, out from Penguin Press. Elizabeth Rosenthal, thank you very much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on FAIR's website, FAIR.org. That's also the place to sign up for FAIR's Action Alert Network or our newsletter extra. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.